welcome to this special episode of Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Between February 11th and April 1st, 2022, the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the Middle East Institute held our 2022 Congressional Briefing Series entitled Israel and Palestine, Hot Topics in Congress. This eight-part series was co-convened and co-moderated by MEI's Khaled El-Gindi and myself, Lara Friedman, President of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. It featured an array of Palestinian and Israeli voices weighing in on some of the most pressing and timely Israel-Palestine related issues that Congress faces today. The series was held virtually and participation was open exclusively to members of Congress and congressional staff. However, given the importance both of the issues dealt with in this series and of the expertise featured on each panel, we decided to make the full series available to the public. You can listen to the podcast here and you can find the webinars on our website www.fmep.org. Now sit back and enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone, uh, and welcome to the third session in our eight-part congressional teach-in series, uh, Israel and Palestine Hot Topics in Congress. I'm Khaled El-Gindi. I'm director of the Palestine program at the Middle East Institute, and I'm very pleased to be co-hosting this series with Lara Friedman, uh, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Thanks, Khaled, and I'm very pleased to be co-hosting this with you and with MEI. Today's session is called The Gaza Blind Spot, um, and to dig into this perennially hot topic, we have with us today another outstanding panel of experts. I'm going to introduce them very briefly here in alphabetical order. Um, for their full bios, you can check the FMEP and MEI websites. I believe our colleague is going to throw a link into the chat so you have easy access. Uh, first, joining us from Gaza, from Gaza City, we have Muhammad Abu Sada. Muhammad is Associate Professor of Political Science at Al-Azhar University, Gaza, in Palestine. Next, we have Jihad Abu Salim, who is a Palestine Activism Education and Policy Associate at the American Friends Service Committee in Chicago. He is also a new non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. We're very happy about that. And finally, we have Tanya Hari. Tanya is executive director of the Israeli human rights organization Gisha, the legal center for freedom of movement. Um, as I said, you can read their full bios. You should also look into the chat for their Twitter handles and links to articles and other resources, which will be posted throughout today's event. And if you miss anything in the chat, uh, don't worry, we'll be posting all those links on the webpage where this video will ultimately live. So the format for today is pretty straightforward. It's the same format that we've been using uh, for all of these sessions. Uh, it is a moderated Q&A led by Lara and me. Um, we'll put some uh, questions to our panelists to get the conversation started, uh, but we very much welcome your questions uh, in the audience as well. You can submit your questions via the Q&A function uh, at the bottom of your screen um, at any time during the, the discussion, and we'll try to work those into uh, our uh, conversation. Um, and we'll be uh, keeping an eye on those uh, throughout the uh, discussion. Finally, uh, just a reminder that we are recording this event. Um, uh, also, if you have any technical problems uh, or questions about the webinar, please submit those uh, in, the, uh, in the chat box and we'll try to get to those as soon as we can. 
Great. So we're going to just dive right in. I'm going to first just throw out a little bit of background so that we're all on the same page. So today there are more than 2 million Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip. They make up around 40% of the population of the occupied Palestinian territories. And of course, the Gaza Strip has been under an Israeli-imposed blockade. Some people call it a siege since 2007. Um, that blockade has also been supported by Egypt to the south and more or less acquiesced to by the international community. In addition, uh, Gaza has been subjected to repeated military offenses by Israel, including at least four major wars, most recently last summer, 2021 in May, but also 2014, 2012, and then there's 2008, 2009. So together, these wars have devastated uh, Gaza's economy and civilian infrastructure, and basically every time you start to rebuild, it happens again. Uh, the results have been nothing short of catastrophic. Um, according to UN sources, unemployment in Gaza stands at around 45%, which is just staggering. Poverty stands at around 59%. 80% of the population depends on some form of international aid, mostly food aid, and 97% of the water is unsafe for human consumption. So with that as the broad context, uh, Jihad, um, before diving deeper into the details of the current situation in Gaza, I want to ask you to help set the scene. Um, give us some historical and demographic background on the Gaza Strip itself, how it came into being as a political, a geopolitical entity, um, the nature of the population, where they come from, including refugees from inside the Green Line, and the political process, historical process, by which it became isolated from the West Bank. Thank you so much, Lara, for uh, the invitation and for uh, Khaled and everyone for organizing this important event. And uh, thanks for the audience for being here today. Uh, I think, you know, there is a key year uh, that help, help us um, understand the trajectory uh, that set in motion uh, where the Gaza Strip is today and, and why it is uh, the region that is going through uh, many of the hardships that you mentioned earlier. And the year is 1948. Uh, 1948 was the year when the State of Israel was established. Uh, it was the year when the British mandate uh, over Palestine uh, came to an end, and the year when, uh, as a result of the establishment of the State of Israel, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were expelled from their homes, from their towns, villages, and cities, and uh, they were rendered refugees. And uh, it's also the year when Palestinians lost, lost uh, huge chunks of their historic country. Uh, as uh, during and as a result of the 1948 Nakba, the catastrophe that, uh, as Palestinians call it, um, the state of Israel was established on 78% of mandatory Palestine or historic Palestine. Um, during that process, uh, the Zionist militias and then the nascent Israeli uh, military forces pushed hundreds of thousands of Palestinians uh, outside of their places of residence, of their towns, cities, and villages. And uh, the, the, the Gaza Strip as a geopolitical entity, as a, as a region, as a geographic region, was born in 1948 as a result of uh, a man-made 
uh, war situation, a man-made conquest. So um, just to help uh, people in, in, uh, imagine what that looked like. Uh, the, the area of what is today the Gaza Strip is equivalent to the area of metropolitan Detroit. Um, it's an area of 140 square miles. Now, imagine if uh, the state of Michigan was taken by force, or most of the state of Michigan was taken by force, and the entirety of the population uh, uh, of that state, except for the population that lives in metropolitan Detroit, was pushed towards metropolitan Detroit, and metropolitan Detroit gets fenced and closed to the outside world, and then it's called the Detroit Strip. This is, in short, the story of the Gaza Strip. Um, during 19, the 1948 Nakba, during the, uh, the war, um, Israel pushed uh, large numbers of Palestinians towards um, Gaza City and uh, a strip of land, the, hence the name, the Gaza Strip, that surrounds the city. And, um, and those 200,000 refugees, as part of the broader, larger number of Palestinian refugees, joined an, uh, an existing population of 70 to 100,000 refugees who were already within what became the Gaza Strip. And, you know, that was a moment when people imagined that this would be a brief, uh, you know, experience of refugeehood. Uh, where they would, you know, seek refuge away from uh, the, the areas of armed, uh, you know, conflict and forced expulsion, and then they would return months later. And this this wasn't something new in uh, in in the experience of war. You know, we're we're now seeing uh, scenes of of thousands of Ukrainians, right, like innocent civilians. Uh, escaping Kiev, escaping, uh, you know, parts of the Ukraine that are, you know, uh, under Russian aggression. Um, and for those people, for the, for all of them, the idea of returning to where they were, uh, you know, where, where they're fleeing from the areas of fighting and, you know, the, the places where their life could be endangered is a natural thing, something that is intuitive and makes sense. But what happened after 1948 is that um, the armistice lines that were drawn between the, uh, <clears throat> the new Gaza Strip and what became the state of Israel, uh, they, you know, gradually and slowly became uh, normalized as a, a border that cannot be crossed. And, um, and now, you know, as, as we all know, uh, it's seen as uh, uh, one of the boundaries uh, that would define a Palestinian state as part of the two-state uh, idea uh, or the two-state framework um, for a uh, resolution of, of the, of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, historically, uh, after, its, after the, the Gaza Strip emerged as a product of the 1948 uh, uh, Nakba or war, um, the Palestinians who lived in Gaza were uh, isolated and separated from their lands, from their property in uh, the remainder of historic Palestine. And they were also separated and isolated from other Palestinian communities. Uh, before 1948, Palestine was a contiguous country. People were linked and connected uh, by uh, the links of marriage and, uh, you know, the bonds of blood and, you know, people being relatives and doing business throughout the area of historic Palestine. But that 
came to an end after 1948. And to add insult to injury, Israel conquered the Gaza Strip in 1967. And um, although it allowed some Palestinians to travel within uh, the area of uh, you know, Israel and the West Bank, it did not allow them to move back to their uh, lands and, and territory, which it seized in 1948. And um, you know, as, a, as a response to Palestinian uprisings and moment of collective organizing, such as the first Palestinian uprising during the, the late 1980s, Israel started to impose a series of closure uh, uh, policies that aimed to um, uh, you know, limit Palestinian resistance and, um, and isolate Palestinian communities from each other. Uh, so in the early 90s, Israel uh, began to impose the, those policies of isolation, which were further aggravated as a result of the Oslo Accords and following the Oslo Accords. And, um, and here we are today, you know, uh, the, the, the blockade which started in 2007, which I, I believe my colleagues will talk about, is yet another chapter in this long history of isolation and, uh, and of this continuous war against uh, the Palestinian people and especially those in Gaza. Thank you, Jihad, for that um, uh, really important context and, and background. Khaymar, um, I want to turn to you next. Uh, I think one of the most striking aspects, you know, we heard the statistics that, that Lara mentioned about the conditions and how dire they are in Gaza. What's most striking really is that this is an entirely man-made disaster uh, that exists uh, in Gaza. So I'm wondering if you could, as someone based in Gaza, if you could give us a sense of what life is like for ordinary Palestinians on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of the humanitarian, economic situation, the public health, uh, particularly after the most recent war last May. Um, what are, and, and if you could, as, a, uh, as an analyst, uh, give us uh, uh, your sense of what are the broader social, political, and security implications of maintaining these kinds of conditions indefinitely. Uh, what does it mean for the future of Gaza uh, and, and other uh, uh, and the rest of, of Palestine to have an entire generation uh, that has grown up never knowing anything other than blockade, war, and international isolation? Please unmute. Uh, thank you, Khalid. And uh, let me first uh, thank you, Khalid, and thank uh, Lara uh, for inviting me to be part of this uh, discussion. And I would like also to express my uh, thanks and gratitude to uh, my colleagues, uh, Jihad Abu Salim and Tanya Hari, uh, for being in, in this discussion uh, regarding uh, Gaza. Um, and I want to thank also Jihad for the uh, uh, good introduction about the situation in the Gaza Strip since the establishment of Israel in 1948. Um, it's true, Khaled, uh, uh, the, 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 the numbers which have been put uh, uh, in, in this discussion with regard to poverty and employment uh, 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 with regard to the 2 million people who live in the Gaza Strip are uh, very crystal clear uh, uh, and give a good indication about the daily life of the more than 2 million people in the Gaza Strip. And let me say that as a result of this imposed Israeli siege and, and blockade against Gaza, which has been imposed by Israel uh, right after Hamas took over the Gaza Strip in the summer of 2007, after bloody clashes between 
PA forces uh, uh, and Hamas in the summer of 2007. Uh, uh, right after that, uh, Israel uh, imposed uh, 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 an extreme uh, uh, siege and blockade against the Gaza Strip. And a few months after that, Israel designated uh, Gaza as a hostile entity, which means that uh, 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 the population, uh, the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip uh, have become uh, a target for the Israeli uh, uh, occupation forces. Uh, uh, as, as you mentioned, Khaled, uh, Gaza has uh, uh, dealt with four Israeli wars uh, uh, since uh, 2008, 2012, 2014, and the last one was in uh, 2021. And as a result of this Israeli imposed siege and restrictions on the Gaza Strip, let me say that uh, Gaza has uh, uh, become the largest open air prison on the face of earth, with uh, more than 2 million people living in a very small territory, and uh, no more than uh, 360 uh, square kilometers, uh, with uh, uh, very much uh, limited access and movement to the outside world. Uh, uh, let me say that uh, uh, the only two access uh, uh, points for the two million people in Gaza are one with, with uh, Egypt, which is the Rafah crossing, and one with Israel, which is the Ares crossing. Uh, the one with Israel uh, very much allows very limited number of Palestinians who are able to cross between Gaza and West Bank or Gaza and Israel, uh, um, mainly uh, humanitarian organizations, international organizations, and some Palestinian businessmen, and very limited number even of, of, of uh, medical cases or patients who are able to travel from Gaza to, to, to the West Bank uh, uh, for medical treatment. And the other axis uh, and point movement is Rafah. Uh, Rafah is open now nowadays, but uh, uh, if you want to look uh, uh, at how many uh, days Rafah was open over the past 15 years, it's a very problematic issue. Uh, there were many uh, 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 days and months where Rafah was very much closed uh, and shut down for, for, for months. And uh, 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 it was a disastrous situation for the Palestinians who could not uh, travel or leave uh, Gaza through Ares, the Israeli checkpoint, and have uh, to wait months and months to be able uh, to, leave, uh, to, to leave through Rafah, which as I mentioned, uh, was for many years uh, uh, closed and uh, uh, locked very much uh, most of the time. And uh, uh, even, even with, with Rafah being open right now, uh, to be honest with you, uh, it, it's a very uh, 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 problematic situation. Uh, I had uh, uh, to, to travel through Rafah just three weeks ago I was on a trip from Gaza to Germany for a conference in Jena, uh, east of Germany. And uh, uh, the, 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 the distance between Gaza and Cairo is about 400 kilometers, which normally takes no more than four to five hours to, to travel uh, between Gaza and, and, and Cairo, as it was uh, uh, when Mubarak was in power or when Morsi was in power. Nowadays, uh, it takes uh, a, a whole day to travel from Gaza uh, to, to, to Cairo, and it takes two days on the way back. Uh, uh, the overwhelming majority of Palestinians who travel back and forth between Gaza and Egypt uh, must spend one night in, in Sinai, uh, in Al-Arish, or other uh, Egyptian uh, cities. So it is still uh, a very, uh, 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 so to speak, disastrous situation for the average Palestinian citizens who have to spend a lot of money 
for for a trip uh, mainly uh, people go to egypt for uh, education or for medical uh, services or for uh, uh, renewing their residency or permit outside of gaza and 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 this is very much the only option for most of them now speaking of, of uh, how life has been in gaza as a result of the uh, latest israeli uh, war uh, which was launched against uh, gaza in, in may of last year 2021 uh, let me say that uh, the latest israeli uh, war just added more suffering to, to, to the more than two million people in gaza with uh, uh, more death more destruction in 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 the uh, uh, civilian infrastructure and uh, 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 it added more suffering because the destruction which was inflicted on the Palestinian infrastructure in Gaza in 2014 has not been completely uh, rebuilt or, or reconstructed. Uh, many tens of houses uh, are still destroyed. Tens of houses have not been uh, uh, rebuilt or reconstructed. And uh, uh, another Israeli war back in May of 2021 just added more suffering and more a frustration to the civilian uh, population, uh, uh, not to speak of, of uh, how many children, how many civilians, and how many women were killed in those uh, four Israeli wars against Gaza. And let me just uh, bring what Human Rights Watch said back in, in the spring of 2021, uh, Human Rights Watch accused Israel very much of uh, committing uh, uh, war crimes against uh, the civilian population in Gaza over the past uh, uh, 15 years. Uh, 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 and and uh, I, let me just remind you that even Israel used uh, 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 weapons that are illegally uh, uh, illegal according to international law, white phosphorus in, in the 2008-2009 war against uh, uh, the Gaza Strip. In general, uh, to be uh, more specific, uh, 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 the overwhelming uh, uh, feeling among the Palestinians here in, in Gaza is frustration and despair because of poverty, unemployment, uh, no access and movement. And uh, we feel we are very much in, as I mentioned, in a big jail that uh, 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 we are only able to breathe. Uh, and and, and uh, almost everything else is, is in disastrous situation. And, and this winter, uh, it, 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 has, it has rained a lot here in, 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 in our neighborhood, uh, meaning uh, Gaza and, and Israel and, and the West Bank. And uh, we, we saw many collapses in, in main streets of Gaza as a result of the Israeli bombardment of Gaza in, in May 2021. And uh, 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 many, many neighborhoods were swamped with, with, with uh, uh, winter rain. Uh, which added more more suffering and more uh, catastrophic situation to the civilian population here in Gaza. Thank you. Thank you, Mohammed and Jihad. Both of you laid out sort of where things are and how they got there. Tanya, I want to talk about the status of Gaza. In 2005, Israel removed the settlements from Gaza, part of the disengagement plan under Arl Sharon, right? So the, so the civilian presence of Israelis in the Gaza Strip was taken away. And since 2007, Gaza has been governed by Hamas. We all know that. With that as the context, 
there's often an argument made by Israelis and by some Americans, including in Congress, that Gaza is an independent entity. It's not occupied territory. It's not Israel's problem. The only reason it's Israel's problem is because people shoot at it from across the border between it and this independent territory. Um, but the international community views Gaza still as illegally occupied. And in terms of the, the framing that we're seeing internationally now, the increasing use of the term apartheid, that is being applied as well to, to the Gaza Strip, not just the West Bank, not just East Jerusalem, and not just even the areas inside the Green Line. And I would point out the recent um, report from Mezan, which is the human, Palestinian human rights group in Gaza. They had a report entitled the Gaza Bantustan Israeli Apartheid in the Gaza Strip. So can you talk about what is the status of Gaza? Is it or isn't as occupied? To what extent is it actually independent from anything? And also the question of whether or not the apartheid language, why that applies there and, and, what, and, and how, how that is, well, how, it does, how it does or doesn't apply there in your view. Okay, great. Thank you so much. It's really great to be with everyone today um, on this on this what I think is a very important topic, despite um, the the headlines. You know, um, obviously on on a really uh, difficult situation in the Ukraine. Um, so it's true that in two thousand and five, as you noted, Israel pulled its um, um, military installations and settlements from the territory of Gaza. But what we um, what we always say is that Israel actually just retreated to the perimeter of the strip. Um, it's still in the air. It controls all of the uh, the airspace. It controls the sea and limits. Um, how far fishermen can actually fish at sea. There is actually no maritime crossing um, via the sea. It controls the borders as, as was already mentioned, other than the Rafa crossing, um, but also an area inside of the strip, um, what it refers to as the buffer zone, um, we would call the access restricted areas. Um, and the range of that area has, has, um, uh, has, has kind of changed over time. Um, but at various times, it composed up to 35% of, of uh, you know, Gaza's agricultural lands and a significant portion of the strip itself. It's a whole area along the, the border fence where people can't uh, approach without risk of, of being fired upon by the Israeli army. Um, it also levels land, it enters at will and levels land in that area. It has uh, sprayed herbicides on a number of occasions uh, to control the, a sight line into the strip. Um, Israel also continues to control the majority of supply of fuel and electricity to the strip, um, which of course affects water supply, sanitation services. Importantly, it also controls the po Palestinian population registry common to both the West Bank and Gaza. So it actually determines who is considered a Palestinian resident of the occupied territory. Um, it controls the customs duties. And uh, of course, um, what Gisha focuses on in our day-to-day -day work, the movement of people and goods. So all of this impacts almost every aspect of day-to-day -day life, as, as you can imagine, the economy, the functioning of uh, the hospitals, um, the ability of families to meet with one another, uh, you know, academia and education, uh, the water and sanitation uh, uh, services. So, you know, I've given all of these um, examples of Israeli control um, to say that, you know, it, in our opinion, in Gisha's opinion, and, and actually it's still the opinion of, of the international community that is the UN, the US, the EU, um, that Gaza continues to be occupied because it meets that test of effective control and occupation. 
Um, and what Gisha says is that occupation isn't black and white, it's a scale. And, um, and the same would be true in, inside of the West Bank. The PA is in, in charge of certain areas of life in, inside of the West Bank. So um, let's say it's uh, um, you know, controlling uh, uh, jails inside of the West Bank where you know, um, lo local uh, residents are, are, are bring, being brought in. If there is torture taking place in these jails, in theory, it's Israel's um, obligation as the occupying power to enter those jails and make sure that torture isn't taking place. But very few of us would say that that's what Israel should do because we are in fact, de facto sort of recognizing uh, a situation of what's called functional occupation, that the authorities have obligations in the areas where they still have control. Um, so we would say that in Gaza, Israel bears um, overall responsibility, and it especially has control in those areas where it has direct uh, control over, over you know, movement and access and, 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 and all of those things that I mentioned. Um, and, and I would also say that, you know, looking at what's happened, what my colleagues have so well described over the last decades, um, a situation in which, which um, Israel still has control over the Strip, it, um, you know, conducts these devastating military operations over and over again with, with um, near total impunity. Um, I think that that's also, you know, should be an omen for, for um, what's happening in the West Bank. In effect, um, what we've seen over time is, is Israel kind of parceling out areas of land where Palestinians are present, whether that's inside of Israel um, proper in, in the West Bank, in Gaza. And so you have what are effectively Bantu stands. Um, in the Oslo agreements, you know, you had areas A, B, and C. Uh, we often refer to Gaza as area G. Um, you know, and in each of these areas, there are differing levels of, of uh, um, access. There's different differing levels of, of uh, you know, attention to the needs of the civilian population inside of Israel, of course. Um, you, you could say that there are greater freedoms and, 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 and you know, ability to, to live one's life in, in, in a better, let's say, than, than in Gaza and the West Bank. But overall, I would, I would point to the fact that Palestinians, no matter where they are, are treated as Palestinians, first and foremost as Palestinians. And I think that that's the, the conversation, um, of course, that Palestinians started many decades ago and too few of us were listening. And in the last uh, few years with international and Israeli organizations also picking up on the apartheid discourse, that's what is, um, you know, it's coming to describe that kind of parceling out of these communities, separating them one from another. So call it apartheid, call it fragmentation, call it separation. I think at the end of the day, we can um, pretty much all recognize that the, the, the end product is um, this situation where Palestinians are um, uh, weakened politically, economic, socially, of course, um, you know, people maintain a, um, their resilience as human beings. And, and I think that there are a lot of, of course, positive developments that, that I, I don't want to, to sort of undermine. Um, Palestinians aren't, aren't victims of this situation. But I, I think that the, the goal is clear, it, it, you know, to, to maintain this situation um, of Palestinian political um, uh, weakness um, so, so that Israel can maintain control over the entire uh, area of land that is uh, between the river and the sea.
Thank you, Tanya. Um, I want to probe you. Uh, I want to ask you to dig a little bit deeper on that last point that you made. You've described, I think, very effectively um, the those aspects of Palestinian life in Gaza that Israel still controls. In your view, what are or, or maybe this is just a matter of public knowledge uh, in Israel, but what are the political objectives behind uh, the blockade that's now been going on for almost uh, 15 years? Um, what is the Israeli policy behind? What is it, what is it trying to achieve? Uh, what aspects of these policies have changed in recent years? Which ones haven't? Um, and what do you think it would take, if anything, for, uh, to convince Israel to lift the siege. Um, uh, yeah, please go ahead. Um, you know, from, from what I know, and of course I'm really paying attention, I don't think Israel has ever really given clear objectives. Um, and it's actually the reason why Gisha refers to the situation as a closure and not a blockade or a siege. I mean, you know, in, in inter international uh, law, um, you, can, you can impose a blockade or a siege if there's a concrete military objective and, you know, you let in humanitarian aid and, and those kinds of things. Israel already controlled uh, the borders of the Gaza Strip. It already controlled the sea space and the airspace. And in 2007, um, it simply closed the space even tighter. I mean, um, you know, in movement restrictions, as Jihad had mentioned um, earlier, have been in, in, in place for decades um, in various ways and at, at, at various times, certain days of closure, um, certain kinds of policies. I can't go into all of the details. You, you'll find on our website an archive really of, of the history of these policies. Um, but the point is, is that um, you, you know, there really has never been a, a, a clear goal that if uh, X happens, then these restrictions will be reversed or lifted. Now, of course, we have seen public statements um, about the measures that are, are coming to pressure Hamas or get the population to pressure Hamas, get Hamas to stop firing rockets. Um, uh, there are hostages, Israeli hostages inside of the Gaza Strip and the bodies of two uh, soldiers. So, you know, these uh, um, actions towards Gaza being um, in place in order uh, for Hamas to be pressured to release these hostages. Um, but, but really, there, there really isn't one sort of, you know, thing that will happen, I think, that will lead to a total reversal of these measures. Um, uh, I think it was Jihad who referenced this uh, policy in 2007. So Israel um, uh, said that what it was doing was, um, uh, imposing economic warfare. It called Gaza a hostile entity and said that it was imposing uh, restrictions on movement and, and also at the time on electricity and fuel. Um, and again, it didn't say until when, it didn't say when that might end. And of course, here we are 15 years later and we've seen some changes in policy, but, but really you know, the same framework is in place. Um, since 2007, I will say that Israel has more and more used uh, the term, um, the separation policy to describe what it's doing. So the word in Hebrew actually means separation and differentiation. And what we see on the ground and the way that the policy is implemented, we see it um, taking both forms. 
So both trying to differentiate between Gaza and the West Bank, essentially pushing the quality of life uh, in Gaza down, and also from the perspective of physical separation, so fragmenting the territory, not allowing movement and access um, between the two areas. Over time, some uh, changes in policy have come about, um, and, and this is really because of pressure on Israel, both international pressure, internal pressure, um, uh, uh, from, from Palestinians. Um, and I think also a realization among the Israeli security sector that, that the level of desperation and uh, the humanitarian situation was causing instability. Um, so like I said, there's been some relaxation of policy, but really not enough to transform the situation. You've seen um, more kinds of goods that can en enter, um, certain kinds of categories of people that can travel in very uh, narrow circumstances, the fishing uh, zone um, being expanded, for example. Um, right now, uh, laborers or workers being able to come out of the strip in much larger quantities. But all of the time, the idea is um, to, to sort of manage the crisis and, and really not resolve it. There is no political vision um, for how this situation would be resolved. And, and I think going back to what I said earlier that, that um, you know, any political vision that was here prior, you know, about a, a, a two-state solution to the conflict or, or some other kind of resolution that would require Gaza to be linked back up to the West Bank or to Israel is really not being discussed by any, um, uh, you know, politicians uh, or, or leaders inside of Israel. It's just a situation that's being managed. And, and from my perspective, you know, working in a human rights organization in, in Israel, I think it's an absolutely morally bankrupt policy. Um, I'm ashamed of it, and you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't live here without you know working any every day to see an end to it because it's just simply um, unacceptable. Thanks, Tanya. And I found myself thinking as you were talking, uh, reflecting on the number of times I've heard Israelis refer to Gaza as no longer occupied and completely differentiated from the rest of the territory in order to argue that Israel can hold on to the West Bank in its entirety forever without losing its demographic majority because you've erased the entire population of Gaza, therefore the numbers work in Israel's favor. It's essentially used as a tool to argue that Israel should never give up the West Bank. Um, Jihad, I wanna come back to you and, and pick up on, on something Tanya said towards the end about the international community. So last year, May 2021, we saw this terrible outbreak of devastating um, war against Gaza. We saw more than 250 Palestinians killed, mostly civilians, many, many children, so many that it actually made the New York Times with a huge um, article and, and pictures and things, more than 2,000 people wounded and also 12 Israelis killed. So these wars have become predictable enough that the term that Israeli officials use is mowing the lawn. Right, periodically we have to go in and mow the lawn knowing that it'll grow back. And it's even become predictable enough that for the past couple of weeks as there's been an uptick of tensions in Jerusalem, particularly around Sheikh Jarrah, where you have a very far right-wing politician actively provoking Palestinians by setting up his office in Sheikh Jarrah. You've seen the international community sort of pressing Israel to like lower the, lower the, the, the heat so that you won't have another war with Gaza. So knowing that it's this predictable and knowing that the causes are known, the cycles are known, the international community still seems pretty helpless to do much other than try to get Israel to do a better job managing the lawn growth, right? 
what is the role and responsibility of the international community when it comes to whether it is maintaining or, or Im improving the situation of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, lessening the closure, challenging the closure, enabling reconstruction, and even preventing this constant, you know, periodic um, escalation of military activity that that you know each time takes Gaza back towards um, absolute desperation. Thank you so much for this uh, question, Laura. I I think there is a uh, a failure in in how the international community approaches not just Gaza but the entirety of the of the Palestine question, um, and and Gaza cannot be isolated from from uh, this uh, uh, you know from this conversation because when uh, this, in the same way, like the international community is uh, "quote unquote" concerned when Israel um, ups its escalation against Palestinian communities in Jerusalem, and then there is fear that um, some sort of air action will uh, come from Gaza. Uh, it, this shows the uh, uh, refusal on the part of the international community to see. The Palestinian uh, uh, cause and the Palestinian uh, question as a question of um, national liberation and self-determination and people who are, are sick and tired of being fragmented, people who are sick and tired of being quote-unquote managed. Just the mere idea that um, this discourse is normalized, mowing the lawn, managing a population, um, determining how much calories, uh, you know, uh, people in Gaza should consume. And, and this happened, right? Like when Israeli, when the Israeli military calculated how much calories, you know, people in Gaza should consume so that uh, it, it doesn't devolve into a severe humanitarian crisis. Um, so I think there is a failure in approach and the international community has failed in um, seeing and identifying the roots of uh, uh, of what causes uh, and what what makes these cycles of violence reproduce themselves in the ways that uh, we witness. But it is it is also important to remember that um, Palestinians do not just react and respond to Israeli aggression uh, with armed means, you know, in um, uh, aside from those moments when, you know, we, we like May in 2021, Palestinians don't just, you know, sit idle for the next, for the remainder of the year. They're engaged in all sorts of means of peaceful and unarmed and nonviolent resistance. They issue reports. They, um, you know, they engage in, uh, in movements inspired by civil rights traditions in the US and South Africa. They uh, embrace, you know, international law and, you know, use the language of uh, equality and justice to express their demands and aspirations. But none of this, none of this, you know, the, the international community pays attention to. And instead, we see a cynical approach 
that revolves around the outdated two-state framework. We see a cynical approach that is complicit in Israel's um, quote-unquote management of the situation by you know, uh, supporting certain Palestinian uh, uh, parties and excluding others by uh, you know, prioritizing security um, at the expense of you know, helping Palestinians overcome the uh, outcomes of decades of economic de-development, of physical frag and national fragmentation, um, of actually for the international community to, to have the courage, um, you know, and I'm talking here about, you know, when I say international community, I'm not talking about an abstract entity. I'm talking about officials, politicians, uh, you know, buddies, the, the quartet, uh, people in the U.S. State Department, you know, people in Congress and so on, who are, you know, engaged and, and these institutions have been engaged in creating those policies that have actual consequences. So I think at this critical moment, uh, where we're witnessing, uh, you know, an ever-increasing escalation of Israeli annexation, expansion. We're, we're with, when we're witnessing a further, the, the, the further further isolation of Gaza. I mean, as a, I'm a Palestinian from Gaza, I've lived, I left Gaza in 2013. I haven't been able to see my family since I left in 2013. They're completely different people in how they look right now. It's it's. It's ridiculous, you know, what Professor Muhaimar described in terms of the, the painful and humiliating, uh, you know, ways Palestinians from Gaza have to travel through Egypt and all the hardships that they have to go through. While just one hour away from Gaza, there is an international airport where anybody can just take a cab for 20 minutes and then, and then you know, fly to wherever they go, they want to go in the world. So I think, I think at this point, you know, as we witness this total failure and the consequences of this failure, um, th this, this violence that we witness does not come out of nowhere. Palestinians do not embrace violence as a luxury that they want to engage in. In fact, Palestinians want to live their lives, want to work, want to be productive, want to be, you know, uh, want to have normal lives. But uh, I think these are all symptoms of this failure. And I think it is about time for the international community for politicians, for decision makers, for bodies that are well-funded and are in charge of determining and figuring out a resolution for the Palestine question to assess what, what went wrong uh, in terms of the peace process, in terms of Israeli policies, and maybe, just maybe, um, try something new, holding Israel accountable. Maybe this will pressure Israel to change its approach and, um, and worry that there can be consequences for its violations of international law. And one last thing, Israel is and has been, um, uh, you know, a violator of international law and always treated international law with cynicism. And it is in moments like this when we see, um, uh, you know, countries being invaded, lands being occupied, people being expelled from their homes and civilians being killed and murdered. It is in moments like this when, when these exceptions to international law and respecting it and to you know, upholding those principles become, uh, become footnotes that dictators and tyrants and war criminals cite to justify their aggressions. 
So I think it is a moment of reckoning for, for all of us, including Palestinians, but also you know, the forces that have been engaged in, in silencing Palestinian voices and in imposing a, an approach and a process that has proved um, flawed in addressing the situation on the ground. Thanks, Jihad. You know, it's uh, you mentioned the uh, Al Arish Airport being just one hour away from from Gaza. But once upon a time, Gaza had an airport of its own uh, that President Clinton, uh, more than twenty years ago, famously uh, uh, arrived in. I mean, those were those were very very different times. Um, in any case, I want to turn to uh, to Mukhamar, and, and I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what we just heard about the role of the international community. But, but also, um, I wanna ask you to, to focus in a little bit on the internal Palestinian situation. And, and specifically, uh, what role does the ongoing Palestinian division uh, and political stagnation more broadly play in sustaining this status quo uh, in Gaza and the blockade in particular, as well as the instability that goes along with it? Is there anything uh, that you see that the Palestinian Authority and or Hamas could do differently that could change this dynamic? Thank you, Khaled. Uh, let me uh, just first uh, uh, just make a short uh, and quick comment about uh, uh, the question which was raised to Tanya with regard to the Israeli strategy or policy toward the Gaza Strip. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm not aware of any clear-cut Israeli strategy toward Gaza. There are uh, a different set of policies, probably, uh, toward uh, Gaza and, and Hamas and the Palestinians in Gaza. But I'm not really sure if there is if there is a, a crystal clear strategy on, on how to deal with, with Gaza and how to deal with Hamas. Uh, let me just be uh, very brief on that. Israel has been saying for the past 15 years uh, that uh, uh, the measures or the, the punitive measures, the siege and blockade, which have been imposed against Gaza since 2007, was uh, aimed at uh, weakening Hamas and uh, 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 um, isolating Hamas. And uh, 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 when you look uh, 15 years later, uh, the, the outcome is completely the opposite. Hamas is much more stronger and stronger now. Uh, 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 when Hamas took over the Gaza Strip in the, in the year 2007 was much, much more weaker uh, in terms of its even grip on Gaza and also in terms of its uh, so-called rockets and military capabilities, which uh, uh, we, we very much saw in the latest uh, 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 Israeli war in May 2021. Uh, um, so I'm not really sure that that Israel is is really trying to weaken Hamas or Israel is trying to isolate Hamas and uh, Hamas is is has become uh, 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 has has maintained some relations with with uh, uh, Arab or regional countries and even some some uh, 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 other countries. So so um, it it's just a backfire uh, Israeli policy or strategy toward Gaza. Going back to your question, Khalid, let me start by saying that the PA, the Palestinian Authority, cannot escape its responsibility toward the, the more than 2 million people in the Gaza Strip. Unfortunately, once the split uh, took place in June 2007, uh, President Mahmoud Abbas and the PA made uh, 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 
the two million people in Gaza uh, are sole uh, responsibility of Hamas. Uh, so ever since the split took place, the PA uh, 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 is very much, uh, uh, has taken a number of measures to, they say to punish Hamas, but uh, uh, to be much more specific, it's it's the, the Palestinian people who are being punished. It's the average Palestinian citizen who are being punished also by the PA and not Hamas uh, or Hamas senior leaders. Uh, so over the past 15 years, uh, the PA has not hired any single Palestinian person in Gaza and uh, uh, it, uh, the PA made it Hamas responsibility to hire teachers uh, for schools, uh, medical staffs for, for hospitals and clinics, and, and uh, 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 you can name it, uh, from judges to police to, to anything. So the PA very much gradually, uh, uh, day after day, uh, uh, became uh, 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 irrelevant, so to speak, uh, to, to the, to the uh, people uh, or to the Palestinians in Gaza. And even what made even things worse is that in, in April two, 2017, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas uh, took a number of, of extra measures, uh, uh, saying that these measures were directed toward uh, uh, pushing Hamas to come to reconciliation or pushing Hamas uh, uh, to put an end to its control over the Gaza Strip. And these measures which were uh, imposed by the PA against the Palestinians in Gaza were uh, uh, four, four main issues. One, uh, slashing PA salaries in Gaza by 30% to 50%. Uh, we used to have around 70,000 people. When the split took place in 2007, around 70,000 people in Gaza were on the payroll of the, pay, of the PA. Uh, now, uh, many, thousands of those uh, have been uh, uh, forced into early retirement. So their salaries were, their salaries were slashed by 30 to 50%. Second, uh, Israel, uh, the PA asked Israel to decrease the amount of electricity goes into Gaza from uh, 120 megawatt to 70 megawatt, which uh, made our life totally miserable in the summer of 2017. And another issue, uh, uh, the, the number of uh, uh, medical cases which were treated in Israel or uh, the West Bank were very much decreased uh, by a decision by the PA Ministry of Health. Uh, uh, now, as I mentioned, the PA said that these measures were directed toward uh, uh, putting more pressure on Hamas, but uh, 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 the, the, the outcome was more pressure and more suffering to the uh, 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 civilian population. Now, uh, 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 let's say that uh, uh, over the past 15 years, there were many uh, initiatives or many, uh, 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 many countries, whether Egypt, Qatar, uh, or other countries were trying to mediate between Hamas and Fatah to try to put an end to the internal political division and restore Palestinian national unity. Uh, unfortunately, none of that has worked. And we were very much uh, uh, frustrated when there was a, a window of opportunity to, to uh, restore or to reorganize Palestinian internal house when Hamas and Fatah and other Palestinian factions agreed early last year, 2021, to hold uh, legislative elections, presidential elections, and PLO elections in, in May, uh, uh, July, and, and August. Uh, 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 
and and uh, unfortunately palestinian president postponed or canceled very much these elections on the on on the uh, uh, justification that israel hasn't given the pa a green light to conduct uh, uh, legislative elections in east jerusalem and ever since uh, 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 elections have i mean is not even on on schedule uh, 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 so it, to to make the story brief uh, the PA is very much responsible uh, uh, for uh, a, a good amount of the suffering uh, that is being imposed on the two million people in the Gaza Strip, and uh, 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 there was a window of opportunity to put an end to this chaotic situation inside Gaza, uh, but unfortunately it was President Mahmoud Abbas who postponed and cancelled these elections and uh, 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 the measure which was taken by the president to convene the PLO Central Council two weeks ago just deepened uh, uh, the internal split. And it doesn't seem to me that we will be able to, to see an end to this split in, 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 any, uh, in the foreseeable future. Thank you, Mahima. You actually covered what I wanted to ask you next. So I'm going to skip to my next question, which was looking, and, and it relates directly to this, because what you're talking about suggests a lot of popular frustration, right? And we saw some of that popular frustration come to a head. It's been almost four years now since we saw what was called the Great March of Return, which were you know, popular mobilization, not affiliated directly with any of the political parties, but a popular effort to challenge um, the status quo and particularly challenging is Israel at the, at the border fence. And according to the UN, that led to the deaths of more than 214 Palestinians, including 46 children, more than 36,000 people injured, including more almost 9,000 children, including losses of eyes and people being shot in the knees. You have a lot of people, amputees now. It's really um, pretty horrendous. Talk to us a little bit about these protests, which were, I think, pretty unique in, in the history of Palestinian protests in Gaza. What were they about in terms of their actual demands? Who was behind them? And what happened? They seem to have petered out. So what happened to them? Uh, thank you, Lara. Uh, uh, let me say that uh, uh, the, the so-called the Great March of Return came exactly a year after uh, these punitive measures were imposed by the PA, which I just mentioned. Uh, they were imposed in early April of 2017 uh, uh, against uh, uh, the two million people in the Gaza Strip. And as a result of the uh, uh, suffering in terms of uh, 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 little electricity and uh, 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 slashing of salaries and more and more Palestinian uh, sick uh, people were not, uh, were not able to get medical treatment in the West Bank or East Jerusalem. And uh, uh, the situation was very much uh, uh, catastrophic. Uh, 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 to the to the Palestinians here in Gaza, uh, so Hamas decided uh, 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 to 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 uh, 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 so to speak an, a new way uh, to to change the status quo, and and that's why uh, uh, the the issue of uh, starting the so-called non-violent uh, uh, protest along the separation fence uh, between Gaza and and Israel. Uh, 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 where uh, mass protests were, were started on the so-called uh, land day, which coincides with March 30th of every year, where the Palestinian commemorates this, uh, uh, this day 
in, in Palestine, West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, and even among the Palestinians in, in, in 1948 territory. So uh, uh, the first day of the Great March of Return started on, on a Friday, which was uh, March 30th. And on that day, a number of Palestinians were killed and injured uh, by Israel. Israel accused them of trying to breach uh, the fence into, into Israel. But it, uh, 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 let me say that the, the Great March of Return was orchestrated uh, uh, to try to break the impasse, to try to break uh, 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 the suffering of, 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 of the Palestinians in Gaza. Now, someone, someone can say that uh, Hamas was under a lot of pressure uh, because of the Israeli siege and blockade and because of the PA punitive measures against Gaza. And instead of uh, uh, dealing with boiling uh, 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 atmosphere inside Gaza, Hamas succeeded in directing that anger toward Israel. Instead of, of that anger being directed toward Hamas as a de facto responsible government for the two million people in Gaza, Hamas succeeded in diverting that anger and that frustration and despair uh, toward Israel. The Great March of Return uh, uh, lasted for almost two years from, from March, uh, uh, March 30th of 2018 all the way until uh, 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 the end of 2019, just before the start of a uh, 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 pandemic, the start of the, the COVID-19 pandemic, which started in uh, early 2020. Uh, during those protests, uh, uh, there were mass protests along uh, uh, the, the separation fence between Gaza and Israel on every Friday and, and national days. Whereas you just mentioned, uh, uh, hundreds of Palestinians were killed, hundreds, thousands of Palestinians were injured, and uh, uh, UN Human Rights Council uh, established an inquiry committee to investigate Israeli crimes against uh, Palestinian civilians, because those, in, in, in except a few cases where there were, there were shootings on, on, on Israeli soldiers along the borders, but the overwhelming majority of the incidents were Palestinian civilian protesters were uh, protesting against Israel uh, 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 peacefully with, with uh, uh, incendiary balloons, whether, whether that is peaceful or not, that is another issue. But there was no real threat uh, uh, to the Israeli soldiers along the borders between Gaza and Israel. But as we saw, uh, 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 more than 250 Palestinians were killed mainly Palestinian civilians. Uh, some of those who were killed were Palestinian uh, uh, par uh, par uh, paramedics, Palestinian journalists, children, women, elderly. Uh, uh, so you cannot say that these, all of these people belong to Hamas or all of these people were uh, Hamas militias or Hamas belong to the military wing of Hamas. The overwhelming majority of those who were killed or injured were uh, uh, just uh, 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 civilian Palestinians uh, 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 who were protesting to improve their daily life. Now, uh, a committee was established and the committee, uh, uh, Israel refused uh, 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 to cooperate with this uh, Human Rights Council uh, committee to investigate Israeli crimes against uh, the Palestinians. And uh, 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 the end of that uh, Great March of Return was two things. One, Qatar intervened, and Qatar, uh, uh, from, that, from, from that time, Qatar intervened and started to 
pay around 30 million US dollars per month uh, to the Gaza Strip. 10 million US dollars goes to the power station, the only power station here in Gaza. Another 10 million US dollars goes to poor families where $100 is given to every poor family in Gaza. And another $10 million goes to Hamas directly, where Hamas uh, pays uh, uh, its employees and its uh, uh, institutions here in, in, in the Gaza Strip. So uh, 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 the, the, the outcome of that Great Marshall Return was, uh, uh, was mediated very much by Qatar. And second, as I mentioned, the, the spread of the pandemic in early 2020 just put an end to the, to the uh, Great Marshall Return. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that the situation now in Gaza is stable or the situation now in Gaza is uh, uh, comfortable. Uh, we are still suffering from poverty, unemployment, uh, 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 lack of access and, and movement. And Qatar is still paying that amount of money, even with, with, the, with the coming of a new Israeli government led by Neftali Bennett or the new coalition who tried to... Uh, 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 negotiate a different uh, uh, deal uh, with Qatar, but at the end of the day, Israel had to uh, give in and agree to the uh, a, a new version. But at the end of the day, Qatar is paying right now almost three thirty million US dollars every month to Gaza to try to alleviate those humanitarian situation in Gaza. Thanks, Mkhemer. Um, if, if I could, I want to come back to you, Tanya, on the Israeli side of things. Um, one key aspect of Israel's blockade is by restricting what Israelis call dual-use materials. That is, materials that are needed for construction of uh, or maintenance of uh, civilian infrastructure, but that also could potentially have military use. <clears throat> How does Israel define these uh, dual-use materials, and why is this problematic uh, from an economic and humanitarian standpoint? I understand that Gisha has a, a report specifically dealing with this question. Um, also, if you could tell us a little bit about the Gaza reconstruction mechanism that was created after the 2014 war, um, how does it operate and how effective has it been? Thanks so much, and I and I also, um, if I if I can, want to circle back uh, to to Mahaymar and and what he said. Um, thank you so much for picking up on on that thread of of uh, you know the question that I started to answer. Um, I very much agree with you that the the this concept of weakening Hamas is you know sort of shady at best, and 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 definitely they have become quite strengthened. And I think. Um, uh, you know, the Qatari money, of course, is also connected to that, right? Because uh, th this government, I think, when it came in, it realized that one of the outcomes of the Qatari funding has been to maintain the division um, between uh, uh, the PA and Hamas. And that is certainly, I think, from Israel's perspective, in its interest to maintain this division, like Lara mentioned, and, uh, you know, maintain uh, a presence inside of the West Bank and kind of you know, going back to where we started, having Gaza as this sort of separate um, entity. Um, so, so I very much agree with with what you said. Um, in terms of the dual use policy, so um, uh, we started out talking about 2007 when um, Hamas came to power inside of Gaza. Israel effectively closed uh, uh, the the one crossing that it maintains 
for movement of goods. Um, and, and it stopped allowing most items into the strip, except for a list of things that could go in. Um, and like Jihad referred to this, this idea of counting calories, the, this idea that Israel had that it could maintain a certain kind of humanitarian minimum without letting the situation uh, um, you know, become a crisis meant that it was allowing um, in certain kinds of food products, very limited you know, items needed for, for, for sanitary needs, um, things of that nature, but it completely stopped allowing inputs in for industry, um, for maintenance of civilian infrastructure, for construction. And it wasn't based on this, on an idea that these items were to be used for, um, you know, against Israel or that they were a security threat. Really, there was this policy of economic warfare. The idea was really to only allow in what was absolutely necessary for the so-called humanitarian uh, uh, needs of the population. In 2010, the policy sort of reversed where instead of having a positive list of things that could go in, you started having this negative list of things that cannot go in, what we refer to as the dual use uh, list. And um, you know, to pull back, there actually is a dual use list that's common to both Gaza and the West Bank. So there are items also not allowed into the West Bank. And then there's a second kind of addendum that's only for Gaza that contains, um, I, I think it's something like 56 items, but some of the items are, are actually broad categories. So things like communications equipment, which you can imagine, it's everything. Um, uh, uh, construction materials are on there. Uh, spare parts, certain kinds of chemicals, and these are needed for a variety of sectors and industries um, inside of the Strip, and as you mentioned, for ma maintaining civilian infrastructure. Um, so in these uh, devastating military operations, of course, the immediate needs afterwards have been for massive quantities of construction materials. And cement, uh, steel, and gravel, the main components of construction, were, were not, simply not allowed in, um, more or less until 2014 with the creation of what has, is called the Gaza Reconstruction Mechanism. And the idea was to give the UN um, control and monitoring of the items uh, that would, Israel was allowing in. Um, you know, so in exchange for allowing these items in, the UN would monitor um, them. Now, over time, Israel has actually removed or effectively removed some items. So now those, those main building blocks, cement, steel, and gravel, can actually go into the Gaza Strip just with regular coordination. But there are still thousands of items that are blocked. So the question of whether the GRM is effective, I would definitely encourage you um, to, to read our latest report on it because it's a complicated um, answer. But I would say just in brief that it really depends on your perspective. Um, some people say without the GRN, Israel wouldn't have allowed anything into Gaza. And so everything that came after it is positive. Um, you know, uh, uh, tens of thousands of homes were repaired and rebuilt. Um, on the other hand, you can say that if it hadn't been created, there could have been pressure on Israel to allow these items in without monitoring. And therefore there wouldn't have been the severe delays that people experienced in rebuilding their homes. And even currently on the rest of the items on the list that are um, very restricted, if, if in some cases not allowed in at all, that are, are harming the economy, preventing people from you know, repair of civilian infrastructure. One thing we've been highlighting, for example, is that the water sector, since the May 
um, uh, uh, attacks have not been able to get all of the items in that they need to repair damage that was done and to do regular maintenance and operations of, of water um, uh, equipment and um, the water sector in the strip. So there's really no excuse for this. And I think that the GRM, you know, in some ways legitimized the restrictions that Israel was placing on these items, where, which at the end of the day are, are civilian in nature and are, are really desperately needed in the strip. Thanks, Tanya. And, and Jihad, you're going to get the last word. I want to pick up on the past, the last two questions. Tanya's talking about um, legitimizers of the status quo effectively to the UN and the Gaza reconstruction mechanism. And Mohamed and Tanya both talked about Qatar effectively acting as a facilitator of the status quo in terms of financing things. I wanna talk about two other um, enablers for better or for worse. And I'm, I don't mean that necessarily in an entirely negative way when it comes to one of them. I mean, Egypt effectively maintains the blockade. One of the borders of Gaza is with Egypt. And then you have UNRWA, which we haven't talked about at all which you know, one can argue plays a critical role in, in humanitarian aid for this gigantic place where people need aid. On the other hand, by doing so, it effectively enables Israel to keep the place perpetually on the verge of, 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 of catastrophe. Can you, can you talk about the roles of Egypt and UNRWA in the Gaza Strip and how you, how you see, what, they, what you think they should be? For this question, um... The blockade, the closure, um, this policy is a form of collective punishment against the Palestinian population of Gaza and it is illegal, period. I think, I think this is important to establish always in any conversation. Now, uh, the relationship between the Gaza Strip and uh, its neighbor, the Arab Republic of Egypt, um, is and has been always a complicated relationship. And um, for regional geopolitical reasons, um, Egypt played different roles in, uh, in dealing uh, and in handling the situation in, in the Gaza Strip. And yes, Egypt should end its complicity in the blockade, uh, especially when it comes to um, the, how it treats Palestinians who travel through Egyptian territory um, and you know, need access to the outside world. Uh, again, Professor Mohamar talked about the, the, the painful journey. And I really encourage people to read uh, the few articles out there that uh, you know, provide details about what Palestinians experience once they decide they want to travel to the outside world and having to go through the Rafah crossing, which is, you know, which can, which has been closed for many years recently, it has been open. Um, but even when it is open, uh, Palestinian travelers, in order to make it to Cairo, a nine hour trip throughout the Sinai, they go through so much hardship. So this complicity in the blockade on the part of Egypt should end. But Egypt is not legally responsible for the well-being of the people of Gaza. Israel, as the occupying power in Gaza, is responsible under international law for the well-being of the Gaza population. At the end of the day, Israel controls Gaza's airspace, controls Gaza's crossings, controls Gaza's, uh, you know, uh, uh, like sea and, and shores. Um, and 
the, as I mentioned earlier, if we are to trace the historic and political roots of why is the Gaza Strip suffering the way it, it is suffering today, uh, this is, you know, this has been a direct consequence of Israeli policies and of uh, the, the very birth of Israel as a state itself when it expelled hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, trapped them in a fenced off, closed geographic territory uh, where they have to dwell there in, in one of the areas with the highest population densities in the world to make room for its Jewish citizens and maintain Israel as a Jewish demographic state. So the Gaza Strip today is the byproduct of Israel's conscious demographic engineering um, to, to maintain its Jewish majority. Now, uh, like I said, the relationship between the Gaza Strip and its neighbor, Egypt, has shifted. Um, and there have been many factors that affected this relationship. Um, but Egypt did not conquer Palestinian land. Egypt did not dispossess Palestinians and expel them, um, you know, uh, uh, from their homes and from their towns and villages. And, um, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Egypt, uh, you know, needs to be held accountable for its treatment of, uh, of Palestinians when they pass through its national territory. The irony, though, is that, um, you know, I, I, I spoke about this earlier, and when I mentioned that there is an airport one hour away from where I live, from my hometown uh, in Gaza, uh, I was talking about the Ben Gurion Airport. If, if I were to decide to go home today, if I weren't Palestinian, um, all I need to do is just to take a cab, go to uh, you know, JFK or you know, wherever airport in the US I wanna fly out from, and you know, take a direct flight, land in Ben Gurion airport, and then take another cab, a one hour ride and go home. I'm, I'm not allowed to do that because of who I am. If you go to the website of the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they list the crossings and, and ports of entry that Israel has. And explicitly on their website, they say that Ben Gurion Airport is uh, open and accessible for everyone except for Palestinian uh, Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So I think, you know, this is this is the I think the reality here is that. Yes, Egypt has some responsibility, but the real responsibility is Israel's because under international law, it is the occupying power. UNRWA, um, we cannot talk about UNRWA without talking about the question of the, of, uh, the Palestinian refugees. 70% of Gaza's population are refugees who were expelled from their homes in 1948. It is a massive enterprise and um, it was initially founded uh, and, you know, and supported by uh, countries like the U.S. in order to, uh, you know, uh, serve uh, Western agendas and interests. You know, the U.S. in the 50s, when it supported UNRWA, they were, you know, they did so in the context of the Cold War. They were concerned that Palestinian refugee camps would become hotbeds for uh, communist activity. I personally read the meeting minutes of uh, State Department officials talking about these things in the National Archives. But today, uh, you know, uh, people criticize UNRWA for you know, from whatever standpoint, sometimes from, from a pro-Israel standpoint, sometimes from a Palestinian perspective that says, 
well, you know, uh, UNRWA, you know, we need to talk about the, the right of return and we need to, uh, Palestinians have the right to exercise the right of return and go, and go home. And I think, you know, all these criticisms cannot be separated from a, a serious political conversation about the, the refugee question and how Israel still insists on keeping millions of Palestinians away from, from their homes, towns, and villages, and prevents them from exercising their legal right to go home. Thanks, Jihad. And uh, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have. Uh, so on, on behalf of the Middle East Institute and the Foundation for Middle East Peace, I want to thank our excellent panelists, um, Jihad, Tanya, and um, Khaymar. Uh, and thank you all uh, for, for joining us in this webinar, and especially those who submitted questions. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get to all of our questions. Um, uh, we hope you enjoyed today's session, and we hope to see you again next Friday at this same time for our next session, which appropriately enough will be about the Palestinian refugee issue and UNRWA, uh, featuring uh, Hani Al-Madhun from UNRWA USA, uh, Omar Al-Ubari, from the Israeli organization Zohrot, and a third panelist that we hope to announce shortly. So thank you all once again, and we'll see you again next week.